I have personally faced the unique challenges of living with arthritis while pursuing a career in STEM. As a student with a disability, balancing academics and health management can literally be an uphill battle. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce the STEM Without Limits Take a Pain Jack Scholarship. Are you or someone you know living with a diagnosis of a rheumatic disease? We're so excited to offer two scholarships, each valued at $2,500, to full-time students who are currently on their educational journey at a Canadian university, college, or those enrolled at trade school programs as undergraduate or graduate students. We're on the lookout for individuals who've triumphed over their adversities, proving that living with a disability doesn't limit their dreams and aspirations. If this opportunity speaks to your journey, don't miss the chance to submit your application before the deadline on January 30th, 2024. Your path to success in STEM is not defined by health challenges, and we're here to provide support and encouragement every step of the way. Applications can be submitted in French and English. And to learn more, visit the link in our description today. Back to the episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent or reflect the official policy or position of the Ticket Paycheck Foundation and podcast. All information shared is from personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not take responsibility for any statements expressed during the podcast. Take a pain check does not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions, as it may pertain to your condition. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. I'm so excited to have Isabel joining me today. Hi Isabel, can you give me a brief introduction about yourself? Tell me a little bit about your education, your hobbies, your career, and what you've been up to recently. Hey Natasha, so um, yeah, I'm Isabel. Um, I'm currently studying my Master's of Design in Industrial Design at Carleton University. I just started this past fall semester and I graduated from my Bachelor's of Industrial Design also at Carleton University in spring 2023. Yes, yeah, so as for career, um, I'm still in school, of course, so I've uh, worked a little bit of freelancing jobs here and there kind of in that area, so that kind of general gist of things. Uh, I really enjoy crocheting. I'm very outdoorsy, too. I like to do some camping, mostly in the summer. Winter's a little cold. Um, and yeah, I also volunteer at Take a Pain Check, too, so... Yay, exciting. <laughs> okay, so you are on this podcast because you're diagnosed with one or more rheumatic diseases, <laughs> What is your diagnosis and when were you diagnosed? Um, Yeah, so my, I guess, official diagnosis um, from when I was 13 uh, would be polyarticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Um, So multiple of my joints are affected by arthritis. Um, There's like an unknown, I guess, cause to it. They can pinpoint anything specific. I don't really have a family history of it. So there's that. I also have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, uh, which is uh, technically a blood clotting disorder. So um, different factors in my blood are really elevated, which means that I have a higher risk of blood clots, uh, which can lead to a bunch of different complications. Uh, I've never had a blood clot, but I do have those um, antibodies. Um, And I also uh, am kind of on a bit of like a lupus journey in a way. I don't have an official diagnosis, but with everything else, I guess, um, it's likely that I have lupus. So kind of in the mud of that. (laughs) 
That's very interesting. We've actually only had, I think, maybe one more podcast guest that's had the antiphospholipid syndrome. So it's very interesting that you have it too. I mean, it's not great, but she also has lupus too. So just like when you're kind of talking about you're in the midst of figuring it out, hopefully mm-hmm. you don't, but if you do. Yeah, I think the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is like a factor of lupus. Like if lupus, lupus is a bit more of an umbrella term, it kind of falls within the realm of lupus, which is kind of why my rheumatologist is suspecting lupus. Um, but I don't have technically enough of like the check boxes on like a list. Like not enough things are checked on the list to yeah. classify as having lupus officially. But yeah, I was only diagnosed with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome uh, when I was around 15 so a couple years after my GA diagnosis um and then the whole kind of talk about lupus and everything wasn't until uh, maybe a year after that so it's about 17 ish okay so every two years something magical happened in your healthcare journey yeah <laughs> you know a little bit of this a little that <laughs> so when did you actually go to see the doctor what symptoms were you experiencing where you kind of came to the conclusion of, hey, I need to go see a rheumatologist or a family doctor or any healthcare professional help. For me, um, my arthritis was very sudden. In the summer before uh, my first year in high school, I started getting a lot of swelling and pain in uh, my hands and my joints and my fingers. I didn't think a ton of it. I'd never really heard of um, kids or youth getting arthritis or rheumatic conditions. So I just kind of went throughout my day and was like, "Hmm, hopefully this will go away soon. Uh, And it wasn't until I believe it was like a friend of my family members, somebody um, like looked at my hands when I'd mentioned they were in pain. It was like, that looks very similar to arthritis. And I was like, that's kind of crazy. Kids can't get arthritis. (laughs) But once they'd kind of mentioned that and we started, me and my parents started wondering like, okay, what is going on? Um, I ended up seeing my family doctor. Um, around end of August, beginning of September, and I was very quickly um, put into the rheumatology clinic at uh, CHEO, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. And from there, I had a rheumatologist. Um, She did a bunch of tests um, to see if I had anything other than arthritis, ruled everything out. And I had my official diagnosis, I think like the second or third weekend of school. So it was about mid-September. So it was a very fast time frame, but also within that kind of two month period, everything started swelling and it just really declined. A lot of what your story is, is very similar to mine in a way, just because well, my friend Rianne actually told me to go see a doctor because I was complaining in grade eight about how my finger was swollen, my wrists were in pain. And at some point she was like, Tasha, I think you should go see a doctor. And then <laughs> the doctor got the blood test done, the imaging, and then it was like, hey, you have arthritis, go to sick kids. So very similar in a sense that she didn't know what arthritis was. I mean, I didn't really expect her to know that like, oh, young people get arthritis, but she kind of hinted the pathway. And I didn't know that because my mom recently told me that. And she didn't even know that either. So she was like, yeah, don't you remember? Brienne actually told you and you told me to take you to the doctor. I was like, I didn't know that. And it was also a very quick timeline because I was feeling mm-hmm. symptoms in September. Beginning to middle October, I got diagnosed. So it's just very similar to my story. And I was 13. So yeah, <laughs> very similar. You then got diagnosed with 
polyarticular JIA, which is also what I have. And was it just your fingers that were hurting? And then because you did mention that it declined in a way, so more things were getting swollen and inflamed and was painful. So what other joints were impacted at that time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it it did start in my hands, absolutely. Um, And I guess it kind of like spread in a way. Um, So after my hands, um, my knees started getting swollen, inflamed, all that fun stuff. Uh, And then it moved kind of to like my hips, my elbows, my shoulders, my jaw, my uh, back, my feet, my ankles. So pretty much every single joint, except like, I think my neck. yeah so kind of everywhere and i think that it was probably towards like beginning of december where almost every single joint was um impacted by it uh which really like sped up like a bunch of testing and like trying to figure out what to do where to go um and yeah so a lot of places (laughs) and has that changed like since you were diagnosed to now have your symptoms or joints impacted evolved as in less joints impacted or still the same? Uh, Definitely less now. Um, So I am technically in remission. Um, I was in remission just over a year after I was first diagnosed, which is kind of crazy. I went on methotrexate, which is um, like immunosuppressant um, very quickly after my diagnosis. Um, And it wasn't until the methotrexate started causing a lot of side effects that made it really hard for me to like participate in school, um, activities, everything aspect of life, uh, where I decided I think I might want to try switching medications. They ended up doing some like imaging, um, like an ultrasound, I believe, and was like, oh, we don't really see anything. So you're in remission, but I still had all of the pain I still was having. So um, since then, I was still on methotrexate for a good couple of years after that. And then things did start to get better, but I have still had chronic pain kind of since like diagnosis or since then. It hasn't completely gone away, but it is mostly impacting my hands and knees at this point or kind of my two biggest points. So since you were diagnosed in the first couple of weeks of high school, how did this affect your social and emotional parts of your life? Yeah, it was definitely very interesting. Like the timing of everything. Uh, I'm made a friend, I guess you could say, like in my first week of high school, she ended up becoming like best friend for all of high school. She's great. And she was very supportive of all of it. Um, She like would help me out. Um, Like Olivia was in a lot of my classes, uh, would take notes for me and made sure I kind of had everything that I needed. And I also had um, one of my teachers at the time who was very supportive as well. So I was definitely supported by people around me. yeah, that was kind of my general support system in like a school setting. Um, aside from that, my family was very supportive. Uh, my sister was supportive too. Um, but I think definitely without them and their consistent support and consistent wanting to let me thrive and help me in any way they could, um, I definitely would have had a worse high school experience, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it's so important to have those supports like wherever you are, whether that be like in the workplace or just in school in general. So I'm glad that you were able to find people. And so did you have any accommodations in high school? Like how did that go for you? I had actually already had an IEP, which is an independent learning plan. Uh, I'm not sure if all school boards have 
the same acronym for it, but essentially um, it's kind of a guideline, I guess, which is student specific that gives the student accommodations access to different tools depending on what they might need. Um, I do have uh, ADHD um, and dyslexia as well. So I had my IEP mostly for that. Um, when I started going to CHEO and was really involved in like the rheumatology clinic there, they actually gave me um, like a package almost to basically just hand to my school and say, this is what she has. This is kind of what's going on. Here's what you need to know. Uh, and they gave me kind of suggestions for accommodations. I believe most of my accommodations were just extra time and in a quiet room. And if it was something that was like written, like had to write an essay as a test, I had like a computer available to me as well. That's interesting because I never got those things to like give to my school, but also how does it feel to give a pamphlet about your diagnosis to someone at school? Yeah, um, it was a very interesting experience. Like, I actually didn't remember too similar to what you're saying with Brian, um, but I didn't remember that I had something to just hand to my school until I asked my mom about it earlier today. <laughs> um, and she said that, yeah, they kind of had just an information package, which I'd never really heard of either, but apparently I had one. Um, but it was kind of interesting to just kind of have this new diagnosis, never heard of it before. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we need to contact these people and like make sure the school knows and then do this and that. And I think that that transition definitely would have been harder if I didn't already have um, an independent learning plan um, because the whole concept of accommodation would have been new to me as well. But because I was already kind of familiar with it, I think I was definitely able to adjust a little bit easier. Oh, okay. So because of your other conditions, you did have an IEP already. So it wasn't hard because for me, I never mm -hmm. heard about accommodations. Like I didn't know this was a thing. And yeah. the transition definitely from not being someone who has accommodations and then getting accommodations for literally the rest of your life. The transition is weird, but then you get used to it. And it's like, this is how I, I think a couple of days ago, I was reflecting on this because I don't know why not. <laughs> but it was, I was just like, it's so interesting that now for the past seven years, yeah, seven years, for the past seven years, I haven't written an exam in the same room as everyone else in my class. So weird to think about it, to just be like, but before that, I used to sit in the same classroom as them. And just like the different changes. And I don't think I'd ever be going back to doing that, even though, I mean, I feel like when you're really accustomed to living with this condition and having these accommodations, trying to get out of that is really hard because you'll either like flare up because you're stressed now or there's just so much. So I feel like these accommodations have really even allowed me to feel more confident when I'm like doing school and be more reassured that everything's going to be okay. And I'm wondering if you felt the same way about accommodations. Like, was there any point, because actually you were so young when you got them. So I feel like you didn't really think too much about it. Is that true? Yeah, I would say that's true. Accommodations, even though they were very small part of my educational journey, in a sense, um, before my JA diagnosis, um they still like I didn't I didn't quite see them the same until I was diagnosed with JIA. I kind of saw it a bit more as like oh yeah like I 
heavy issue, I get distracted easily. Um, reading's a bit tough. It's just to, you know, give me a little bit of extra time or something. Um, and it may not be like, you know, a necessity if I didn't have an accommodation for a test before I was diagnosed with JAA. It wasn't a huge deal. I could still get by. And I think that my mindset definitely kind of shifted um, after getting diagnosed with JA because like you're right, like now I can't really see myself doing a test or an exam or anything without it because I'm more like, okay, like what if I can't like write down all my thoughts in time? Like what if I like have a really bad like I don't know, brain fog day or something and I just need that bit of extra time to kind of work through different problems in whatever test I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it, it really is something that I can't see myself going back on either. Um, or if I did, it'd just be so much harder. Like I am also very like accustomed to needing that as something. Realizing that like this is your reality and like this is what you need is so important because if it is taken away, I feel like it would be very hard as in, like, if the accommodations were taken away, it would be really hard to navigate that. I was kind of lucky in that sense because for me, I knew accommodations existed. Um, my mom is also a teacher. So when I was also diagnosed, she was like, okay, we can get a more accommodations. Like, it was an immediate thought for her, right? But there are definitely, I think, a lot of people who don't seek accommodations or kind of think, oh, like, I don't need that. I get, I get like, good enough grades. It's fine. Um, but I would, I would really encourage everyone who thinks that they would benefit from accommodations or has any form of condition similar to arthritis to go and like look and see what your options are and see what can be done to help you. Um, because especially in terms of school and education, your goal is to learn and to thrive, right? That's kind of your only two objectives when you think of it. And to learn, you can go to your classes, do what you need, um, even getting actually some accommodations include note takers too, which can help with the learning. But in order to thrive in that environment, you might just need a little bit more than other students, like again, a scribe or extra time. But I, I do really think that without accommodations, my school would not have gone as well, definitely. Especially in like high school too, you're trying to like apply to universities. So you like need better grades depending on, of course, what you want to do. But I feel like that could be like next to impossible for me anyways, if I didn't have accommodations to do my the program that I ended up choosing and to take that as a career path. Same here. And that's why oh my God, I was going to put a little plug in here for accommodations. You can also get like voice to text software, like speech to text and like other technology softwares that can help you do i don't know chemistry better or design tools better but that costs money and so we have a scholarship we did talk about it at the beginning of the episode so definitely check it out um, it does give you the funds that you may need to support your education because i think we both know how hard it is when you live with a condition you do need like an ergonomic gel pad under my keyboard to like make it comfortable when i type just like different things like that and it adds up so we just want to be there to support others and that's the goal. Okay, now I'll stop talking about the scholarship and I'll move on. So you mentioned being diagnosed with lupus or at least just having conversations with your rheumatologist, which will eventually lead to a diagnosis of lupus. Can you talk a little bit about what your symptoms are? What led you and your rheumatologist to come to this conclusion? Yeah, so the biggest uh, factor to kind of my pathway of potentially getting diagnosed with lupus would be the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Um, it It's kind of one of those things that doesn't always stand alone. Um, from what I've kind of read, it 
usually is uh, accompanied by lupus or a different form of uh, immune condition. Um, so that was kind of our first red flag almost of, okay, like maybe lupus is something we should be looking into. Um, aside from that, uh, because I am in remission from my JIA, um, but I, I never had that pain go away. I have had consistent chronic pain ever since diagnosis. It's never stopped. Uh, I'm at least in pain in one part of my body or another. Um, but because on my ultrasounds, it's not showing evidence of uh, JIA, She's think my doctor and I are kind of thinking that maybe um, I do have lupus um, and that's causing the pain because pain can be a symptom. Um, and maybe they're kind of all, I guess, like entangled, like the antibody antibody syndrome, the like past JIA, and maybe that's kind of leading into lupus. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like an unknown and it can be, I believe that lupus is like a hard thing to kind of get diagnosed with if you don't have enough kind of symptoms. Uh, we have been talking about um, like different rashes because rashes are often very associated with lupus. Um, I don't have any of the classic rashes though that you'd see with lupus. Um, but if I do end up developing a rash, which can often happen on like your feet, for example, um, then I might be able to get like a biopsy. Um, actually, I guess I did have symptoms in my feet. I had like this weird, like just pain sensation in like my toes inside of my feet. Uh, and it wasn't like an arthritis sensation. So I'm very familiar with that, with what that feels like. So we're thinking maybe that is part of a symptom, but yeah, it's pretty like a bunch of pieces everywhere that <laughs> we can't stick together yet. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it must be kind of challenging knowing that you have some of these symptoms, not all of them, but still trying to figure out what this diagnosis is, knowing that there is a name for it, but you don't have entirely everything. It's a very confusing yeah. situation. <laughs> so hopefully you get some answers soon. Yeah, and it was really interesting too, like even the whole process of di being diagnosed with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, uh, it wasn't even a thought that kind of crossed anyone's minds until uh, I was in high school, I was, I want to say 15. Yeah, sounds right. Uh, I was about 15 and um, I, I'd i always kind of had really painful and uh, long and heavy like periods and cycles. Um, and I was discussing with my rheumatologist different like birth control options, thinking maybe that could help me with some of that pain and discomfort that uh, unfortunately comes with being uh, a woman. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I was like, what if I went on like the birth control pill? Maybe that could help with some of this that she wanted to double check to make sure uh, I didn't have really high, I guess, blood markers. Um, and she was like, I'll just run this test. We'll double check it. It's probably going to be completely normal. And then after that, I'll prescribe you some form of birth control. And then, of course, it was not normal. It was really, really high. Uh, and then I ended up not being able to go on birth control so I got an IUD instead and that kind of led to that diagnosis even but without that I probably would have never known. How did birth control intensify other symptoms of your rheumatic diseases? In general when I was like on my period or in that part of my cycle my inflammation levels would be a little bit worse. Um, for me they were fairly I guess like separate um, in a sense like I did have really heavy periods not great, um, which like led me to get an IUD. Um, 
But it kind of wasn't until I got my IUD uh, when I realized that my hormonal cycle definitely played a role in my general levels of inflammation. And of course, it plays a role in like your mood and everything and energy levels too. Uh, And then with my IUD, that kind of all like evened out in a way. Um, Like, I guess my hormones wouldn't like necessarily spike as much throughout a normal cycle as they would before. So I think that did contribute a little bit to my overall pain levels um, and just general inflammation as well. But it's kind of hard to tell with, um, I don't know, this is a while ago. And I feel like there's a lot happening at the time, like high school. Like, (laughs) Yeah, when it comes to pain, you can never really pinpoint or like flares. I feel like you can't really pinpoint the trigger of it. It's like, oh, I was stressing about this or I overexerted my joints it's really hard to say it was because of this or it was because of that and really because there's so many things happening you just have to go with the flow and see what happens and say okay i'm in pain what are we gonna do about it and not be like this pain was because of this this pain was because of like it just gets really confusing and i feel like you're constantly thinking about it so your support system of friends at least did not have rheumatic disease at that time so i'm just wondering how did you kind of find a support system of people who did have rheumatic disease what was your journey to find your like arthritis community um there's definitely i think a lot of different steps i guess to go from where i was then to where i am now um I, I did definitely benefit from going to CHEO for my rheumatology rheumatologist and rheumatic care. Um, lots of like pamphlets and wall posters. Um, so I did find out about uh, the Arthritis Society walk. Um, and I want to say that was kind of within my first like 10-ish months of being diagnosed. Um, and then the walk happens in like the spring, I think, is when it used to happen. So it was that spring after being diagnosed uh, where my family and I went to our first walk. Um, it was like a fundraiser thing. And then eventually um, the Arthritis Society again ended up um, starting like an arthritis camp. Um, so within that camp, I ended up meeting, or which I ended up attending, I ended up meeting um, tons of different youth and people around my age, people younger than me who um, all had rheumatic conditions of some sort. And that's definitely where I built kind of um, really strong friendships with different individuals with the same or very similar conditions. And I think that was where I really kind of hit me that like, oh, okay, I'm definitely not as alone as I thought. Um, And there's definitely other people out there who I can connect with. Um, Yeah, and after that, I ended up uh, speaking at one of the arthritis walks uh, about my experiences at camp. Um, From there, uh, I got involved with Take a Pain Check and uh, the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance too. Um, So yeah, it was kind of a bunch of different steps. (laughs) I mean, it's good in a way because those different steps like allowed you to meet more people. I know I haven't been to arthritis camp, but I've only heard good things about arthritis camp, which is so great to hear. And yeah, I I know that that's really provided a lot of people with arthritis a space to connect and meet others going through the same things as them. So I think it's great. And if people do have an opportunity to go, I think you should definitely go. <laughs> and 
I know that you currently also live with your significant other. Can you talk a little bit about how you told them you had arthritis and how they help you on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah, so I do live with my significant other. His name's Alex. Um, and he we met in like my first year of university just before COVID hit. Um, we ended up becoming really close friends for a couple of years. Um, and I think it was maybe like, I don't know, like six-ish months into us just being friends where I mentioned my rheumatic condition. I am very like open about it. And um, anyone kind of who wants to listen or learn, I'll tell. Um, but we were close friends before we started dating. So that definitely kind of, I think, helped the transition, I guess, in a way. And then when we started dating, I already knew how much of a supportive like person he was. Um, we'd go to even like parties and things in university together and if I was like yeah I'm gonna go home my knees are really sore (laughs) he would just be like oh okay like do you want to ride want me to walk with you that kind of thing um I think that that kind of like played a role too in uh, when we started dating um and like my comfort levels in general just because I knew that uh, I didn't have to be worried about um having a rheumatic condition or him feeling specific ways about it or about like my mobility, I guess, in general. Um, And then I guess we ended up to where we are here and we've been living together since like summer, beginning of the summer. So like, I don't know, six-ish months. I'm not a math major. (laughs) And so (laughs) how does, I know you said he's very supportive. How does he help you on a daily basis or when you need something like can you give examples of something that he's done to help you when it comes to living with a rheumatic disease yeah absolutely um so he does know that my rheumatic condition affects every part of my day every day is different like he doesn't know if i'm gonna wake up in the morning and be like wow everything hurts i can't really do any of those things that i said i was going to do today um so he's very like even accommodating in that sense um where if it's like I don't know, we were going to wake up and we were going to like clean the whole apartment. And that was our big plan. But if I wake up and I'm like, I don't feel good, like I can't do that. uh, He understands and he like works with me to come up with other solutions or rearrange schedule. Um, And then I guess also if I'm having really bad like flare days or a lot of pain, um, our relationship like communication was very open too so we've gotten kind of to that point which didn't happen like right away um communication is something that you can work at I think and believe anyways is something that can always be improved um so we're at a point now where uh we communicate to each other like how we're feeling like what we're doing so if I communicate to him that I'm like having a rough like day with moving and everything he'll like he's got the time of course he'll be like oh do you want me to like make you some lunch do you want me to bring you like a glass of water um so it's kind of more like little things that I think really add up and really and help him I guess also feel like he's supporting me too but did he have any questions when you told him you had arthritis when you were friends or did he know what that was and what that meant how did that conversation go Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was more of a gradual conversation. It wasn't really like a sit down formal, like, okay, 
welcome to our meeting. I'm going to tell you everything <laughs> you need to know. <laughs> um, it was very gradual, I guess. Um, and he was open to like learning about it kind of as we went. Um, and of course, like there were times where I explained specifics or um, like medications or um, even when I had to explain like the weather. <laughs> like, oh yeah, like when it rains a lot and like, you know, really bad, like humid week and stuff, I'm going to be in a lot of pain and I'm going to sleep more. <laughs> and I think that kind of threw him a bit. He was like, okay. Um, but just kind of explaining like why some of those things can happen and um, getting to like know each other in that sense can help us out. I'm so proud of both of you. <laughs> I also feel like he's also more knowledgeable about things that he wouldn't have been in the past, like in terms of like healthcare and things like that. So it's great to see that you're comfortable with telling him about these things because a lot of people that I've talked to have also just not said anything about it or are afraid to say something about it. So, yeah, I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally understand, um, like, being worried, too. And I think for a while as well, especially considering we were friends before we started dating, I would really downplay almost my disease um, or condition. Um and say like, oh yeah, like every now and then, like, you know, my hands are sore every now and then, like my knees hurt. I think especially in a friendship role, people often do that. They don't want their friends to worry. Um, And it wasn't really until, I guess, we started getting more serious in our relationship where I kind of had to mention almost like, oh yeah, this actually, like it does affect me more than just every here and there. And um, I think saying that to somebody that you really care about too, can be really challenging in itself um and just being open and like vulnerable as well um so yeah I completely understand other people too struggling to completely communicate and completely say everything that's going on I guess yeah I think the fear is that if they hear that will they run away will they walk away (laughs) yeah will they not know how to deal with it will they judge me differently And then also I'm wondering, like, I'm assuming that you've been on dates and things like that, like how you ensure that it's like accessible or arthritis friendly. Some people might be like, let's go bowling. And you're like, my hand hurts. I cannot lift up a bowling ball. (laughs) So how do you explain that? Yeah. And I think too, it's really like worrying, um, like surrounding like dating too, when you're, let's say you like have plans as well and you're just not having a good day and you're like, I don't know if I can go through with this. And you're worried, like you're like, you're like I don't want to cancel on this person because I don't want to think them to think I'm not interested in them, but I also can't really do that activity, but I don't want to have to go and explain my entire like life story to this person right now. Um, so it can be so challenging too, to figure out uh, like how to approach different situations. Like even like myself I've like lied <laughs> like I had back when I like was single too I I just kind of be like um yeah I like woke up and I think I think I have food poisoning sorry <laughs> 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 um can we reschedule um and I don't think lying is like you know the greatest option um and it is it is a really personal decision and a really difficult balance because it it just depends I guess on your whole comfort level um, surrounding your disease and any stigma you have with it too. Um, 
And yeah, it, it's just so personal. Do you need to just figure out like when's the right time, how much you want to say, I guess, from what I'm getting at it, and like when you want to say it and if you want it to be gradual or all of a sudden just dump everything. Like I think it's personal, like you mentioned. So thank you for that advice. Maybe I'll follow that in the future. <laughs> okay. Other people too. I would say definitely don't wait too long. Uh-huh. Oh no, for sure. I, so I also met someone who I talked to on the podcast that told her significant other that she has arthritis when they traveled somewhere because she had mm-hmm. replacements and like mm-hmm. your metal knee, like there's metal. So when she passed through, she would get like buzzed for it and she would have to kind of explain it. <laughs> so that was her timing of when she was going to say something. So some people just plan in advance and have a plan. But yeah, don't wait too long because you don't want it to be too long into it and then you're they don't they don't like this and then it'll just be bad. It has more to do with them as well at that point than it does with you. Like if you're saying like, oh I have this condition, um, these are my limitations, and somebody's like, Oh, no thanks, then like that's that's not nice. <laughs> yeah. So. And I think that there'll be better people out there for you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Guys, go us. Moving on, because we talked about relationships and friendships, but during that time of being a teenager and a young adult, you've also had to transition healthcare. So you transitioned from pediatric to adult healthcare. And what were some differences that you saw in terms of the healthcare setting, the environment, the doctors, your appointment times, things like that? Yeah, so my transition was generally, honestly, like I really lucked out. Um, I've heard some pretty rough stories from other people and it can be a nightmare for some. Uh, For me, my rheumatologist at the Children's Hospital uh, knew a rheumatologist who was taking patients um, and clearly liked that rheumatologist's style, I guess you could say, and referred me right there. And from there, um, like it was a pretty easy transition. I think my first appointment with my adult rheumatologist, my uh, parents were allowed to come too. So uh, I don't know if it was both my parents or just my mom, I can't remember, but um, that definitely made the transition feel like a little bit better. I was a little bit more at ease, uh, even with my time at the Children's Hospital too. Um, I think about a year before I trans- transitioned to adult care, um, like my rheumatologist would slowly start running things a little bit differently. Like we'd have a section of the appointment where it was me and my parents, and then a section where it was just myself to kind of almost get me more prepared for adult care. Um, So yeah, it was a pretty smooth transition. So you do go to a transition clinic, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. And there's a difference, I guess, for people that don't know between just going from pediatric to adult care, which is what I did without a transition clinic, whereas going to a transition clinic allows you to prepare for it. Because I know for transition clinics, they actually give you that selected time with your parents and then without your parents. And they're, they prepare you more so that when you're out of that transition clinic at some point for adult care, sometimes you can stay with the adult rheumatologist, but sometimes they make you change. You are more prepared because you've had kind of the training. <laughs> I don't know if training is the right word, but you've had sort of time to build those skills to be able to like navigate the healthcare setting without your parents. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. I feel like I've always wanted to go to one, but it's too far from my house. There's like a whole access of transition care things. But if I guess to people who are listening and are near some of those areas, like definitely check out transition clinics. I think it does really support. It's a very supportive environment. Not saying that adult 
rheumatology clinics aren't, but this is like, it makes you feel more comfortable and confident from what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to your initiatives and interests, you are an industrial designer. So what does that exactly mean? What do you do? And how do you incorporate accessibility into what you do? Yeah. Um, so industrial design, I'm going to put it really short because it's a whole can of worms. Um, it's essentially product design to, yeah, <laughs> uh, essentially product design. So that can be anything from designing like, um, like water bottles to like laptops to furniture to um, even like web-based systems too. So like website applications, um, so many different fields is kind of incorporated into industrial design. Uh, a lot of the times when people think of industrial design, uh, one example would be like cars and automotive design. Uh, they're very oftentimes industrial designers working on uh, vehicles. Um, the kind of main thing I guess that sets industrial design apart is it's very like user-centered and user-focused um, at its core. So oftentimes industrial designers are focusing on the end user and who's actually going to be using the product um, and working with different maybe like engineers and marketing people within a company in order to make sure that the user's needs are met um, as well as all the materials work in the, I don't know, like batteries functional or like last long enough is more of an engineering thing but kind of works with a bunch of different disciplines in terms of accessibility i am really passionate about uh, accessibility design and designing um, with accessibility in mind uh, i think that a lot of things that are invented and things that are made aren't accessible especially things that are used by so many different people um, like even think of like cars right for example um so many different cars and car designs like don't work for people with uh, mobility issues or mobility aids and it's just such a big industry that you think there'd be more options for people who um like need more space or something like that um but yeah so anytime i'm a designer working on a design project or uh, i do freelance so anytime i'm like, freelancing i always try and make sure that um, accessibility is something that's added in and it's not uh, an afterthought um a lot of products you see can say oh like we're accessible for i don't even know like we have accessibility features but they can feel very like separate from the actual like I don't know, like website you're using or if you're on a website and you need um, like a text-to-speech and, and it doesn't like work great that's a great example of how accessibility is kind of a bit of an afterthought in some situations so um, yeah I really enjoy um, designing like, with accessibility in mind kind of from the get-go. You're also a part of Take a Paycheck <laughs> and the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance which we briefly discussed at the beginning of the episode. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with both of these organizations? Both Take a Paycheck and the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance. I am the Youth Development Coordinator is my position or title I guess um, and so kind of through that um, I mostly focused on their Make Room for Youth initiative that they um, executed last fall, so fall 2022. Yeah. Um, and that was a survey done. Um, so I, I kind of took a lot of that data and analyzed it. And um, the goal was to discover different areas where youth and young adults with traumatic diseases and conditions 
uh, might need more support in outside of just their medical care. Um, so through that, a lot of things were like identified. And part of my role is to take kind of those findings and keep going with it and create resources, um, like workshops, plan different things, initiatives um, within both organizations as mostly like joint projects. Um, yeah, it's kind of the best way I can sum it up. Oh, that's great. And it's been great working with you. To kind of wrap up this podcast episode, I think we've given sort of a brief overview of what your initiatives and interests are, but I'd like to end off with an advice segment. What advice would you give to those who are having troubles advocating for themselves regarding accommodations and accessibility? Yeah, so I think in terms of a school setting for accessibility, um, like we went over it a bit, um, just kind of exploring and looking at what other people are doing. Um, even like listening to the podcast uh, can give you ideas on different kind of um, like options that might be available or that you might be able to do. Um, advocating for yourself is hard, <laughs> right? To kind of sum it up. Um, it can be really difficult and tricky. And uh, I think within accessibility and accommodations uh, in school and in work settings, it can be really hard to find an access. Um, I think kind of being a bit like stubborn with it in a way is can be beneficial. Um, if people aren't listening or you're not getting the um, different things that you need in order to do your school or to do your job to the best of your abilities, um, you really need to find the right people who will listen to you within that school setting or work setting um, and keep like digging, keep looking um, until you can find somebody that will listen to you, hear you out and try and help you to the best of their abilities. Thank you so much, Isabel, for joining me today on this week's podcast episode. We talked about your diagnosis, your medication journey. You talked about how you educated yourself about your arthritis. And then also we moved on to discussing symptoms associated with lupus, talking about period pain, and how you started to kind of reach out to different support systems outside of school. And then also your journey uh, for transitioning from pediatric to adult healthcare. We also talked about support system in terms of friendships and relationships. And then we finally dived into your work as an industrial designer and also your involvement with the Arthritis Society, Take a Pain Check, and the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance. So everyone, like, comment, subscribe, stream this episode on different platforms. I'll see everyone in two weeks on Take a Pain Check. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. <laughs>